Genesis 32, for now, the best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, and Love. Don't read it. It tells the story of Elizabeth Gilbert's journey of what she calls self-discovery and spiritual exploration. Um, These were events that took place in her life after a very difficult divorce. And so she took a trip on her own and she went to Italy and she went to India and then she went to Indonesia and she explored all of these temples and religions and forms of worship and she came to come up with her own philosophy and she shared it in her book Eat, Pray and Love. It's at Barnes and Noble. Here's what she came up with. God dwells within you as yourself exactly the way you are. Um, You think that's outrageous and that's crazy. What is that about? Well, let me tell you this. Her book sold 12 million copies because that way of thinking about yourself and self-discovery, and by the way, it's also been made or is being made into a film. And so it shows that that philosophy of how you see yourself is in tune with just about everybody in our modern culture. Um, Today, and you know this to be true, today our culture, people think that in order to discover yourself, you have to look within yourself. Um, Our modern culture and society long ago gave up on any idea of believing in an idea of a creator. And because of that, our society looks within themselves instead of looking above themselves to God to find meaning in life, meaning in their meaning in their circumstances and situations. So in rejecting God, our modern world has turned to what I call an alternative gospel. And a gospel, you know, is a truth which people look to for happiness. And there are many alternative gospels out there. But one, I would say, from my reading and my seeing of what's taking place in our world, is one of the most common or most predominant one our culture sells is the gospel of self-esteem. That gospel says, look within yourself to find out who you are. And when you look inside, you're going to find out that you are absolutely wonderful. It doesn't take long to read, and I have read more books on psychology and self-esteem that you'd probably ever want to. But let me summarize it for you. High self-esteem is something that is to be desirable in our culture. In other words, to think more highly of yourself more and more and more. Supposedly, when you do this, that you are going to build confidence in yourself, you're going to find security in life, and you're going to be resilient in just about any and all circumstance. And the danger is what is to be um, seemed as harmful and to be avoided is low self-esteem, almost like as a disease, get away from it at all costs, because self-criticism and excessive guilt And the need to please others is usually some of the traits that go along with it. If you're not familiar at all with the gospel of self-esteem, you'll find that it's the way most people in our world try to make themselves happy. And they think that they can do it by loving themselves and doing it more. (laughs) The gospel of self-esteem really, really on a page, and when you talk to people who are familiar with it and live by it, it sounds really great up front until... You compare it with hymns in our hymn book, and more importantly, when you compare it with Scripture itself, you'll find out that it's anything but great. 
Let me give you some examples. Now, if you're my age, you're going to remember these. Truthfully, we should remember hymns, and I hope your kids remember them because they need them. Let me, here's the, the, the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus by Elizabeth Kaflani. She writes this, listen to this. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of his glorious love in my own unworthiness. Now, that would not fly in self-esteem culture. Our unworthiness. I read article after article this week about how you deal with unworthiness. It is to be avoided. You should not think those thoughts. They are terrible. That you would think that you are unworthy, but you should think you are worthy, that you are deserving. In fact, it said you should think of yourself as great. Amazing grace... How sweet the sound. Finish it. What did you say? You did not use the W word. Wretch. A wretch like me. How many tonight would say this? Pastor Walker, you're absolutely right. Here's my hand. I am a wretch. Yes. But you're the only ones in the world. Almost. A wretch like me. Huh. Interesting. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm? Wretch? Worm, what is happening? I feel my esteem going lower even as we talk. Um, By the way, look in your handbook. Don't do it now. Look in your handbook for yourself. Can I read you how that song in our hymn book goes? And I like our hymn book. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? They took worm out. They took it out. Sinners is bad enough. Worms? Ridiculous. Right? Worms. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, is not the original words. When it was written, it was come ye sinners poor and wretched. But they couldn't handle it over time, so they switched it to needy. Remember the chorus of this song? My sinful self, my only shame, my glory all the cross. My sinful self. What has happened to our world? Nobody hardly believes this anymore. (laughs) I'm here to tell you tonight that you can only discover who you are when you discover who he is. See? No longer to, not many many Christians would say that they were wretches at one time or worms. But unfortunately, we are more happy lying to ourselves. And we can only be true to ourselves, which is everybody's motto today, right? We can only be true to ourselves if we are honest with ourselves. And most most people, including some of God's people, are not. They really don't see themselves as any of these things that the songwriters say. Anymore, We don't see it that way. We don't see God and his holiness like the Bible teaches. And we don't see ourselves in light of that. Very few. Listen to Job. Job 42. And by the way, listen to Job, who was described at in the first paragraph 
in Hebrew of Job 1 as the most righteous Sadiq, the most righteous man on the, pla- on the planet. Nobody was more righteous than him. So listen to what the Bible says. He says, his words, my ears have heard of you, talking about God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust. The most righteous man on earth says, God, when I've seen you and then I take a look at myself in light of that, you know what? I despise myself. The self-esteem culture would practically have a fit if people said that. Ezekiel 36, 1 and 2, God says to his people Israel, then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds and you will loathe yourself. Loathe yourself. It really goes against the grain of everything that is happening in our culture today. It's obvious from scripture, isn't it, that we are not to pursue self-love. There are only two commandments that Jesus says describes in summary the totality of Torah. Two, not three. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It is not a command to love yourself. We already do that very well naturally. We don't need a commandment. To love your God and love your neighbor, the two commandments, as you love yourself, is assumed. It is not necessary. It is not a commandment. It is not something we pursue as if we need higher self-esteem. So it is not for us to define who we are by looking within, but rather looking in above. But when you do, and when you talk like I'm talking tonight outside of these four walls, you are swimming against the cultural current of self-esteem, which we swim in every day. Because today you view yourself, everyone wants you to view yourself as special. You don't believe me? I read an article this week, and this, I'm not making this up. There was a, guy, a lady who was going to work in the small children's ministry of her church. Not a school, not a public school. This is her church. And so the lady that was training her said, when you have the kids who are three years old, we need to start early. And so I, it's good to teach them to sing this song. And the song is based on the tune Frere Jaca. We all know that, right? Shake your head, please. Okay, good. All right. And I'm going to sing it. You can do this if you need to. I am special, I am special, look at me, you will see someone very special, someone very special because it's me, because it's me. I'm going to use that in my house. Now this is a song they wanted to teach three years old kid, three year old kids at church because they wanted them to know at three, you are very, very special. Now, take all that I've said tonight and put it against these statements that we're going to look at. We're going to do four case studies, and every single person, powerful, godly, spiritual characters in Scripture, even Jacob, who later becomes that toward the end of his life, all of them say the same exact phrase. Ready? Tell me how far from self-esteem this is. Every, all four of them say, I am not worthy. All four of them do. They do not say, I am special. They do not say, I am great. They do not say, wow, look how wonderful I am. But 
All four of them have this in common, that all of them had a meeting, an encounter with Jesus. And in every single time, their response is, I am not worthy. We might call that, I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. Jesus tonight, I would say to you, is inviting you to stop looking inward to find out who you are, but rather look at him to find out who you are. Because you can only discover it then. So we're going to look at four people who did what it meant in their life and how it can impact yours. So let's look at the first one, Genesis 32 and Jacob. I'm going to give you all four right up front. If you're taking notes tonight, I'm hoping and praying and I think we can get through all four of them. Five minutes each. Um... If not, I'm going to give you who they are and you could do some work on your own. Jacob, Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy. John the baptizer, more than anybody else, all four Gospels and Acts, where what he said in the Gospels is said again, repeated in Acts. And it's Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.7. Remember, if you can't write this fast, you can always listen to the video or the audio. Luke 3.16, John 1.27, Acts 13, 25. All of those five things with a little bit of different because the authors all say a little bit differently. But that he tells, I am not worthy. That's what he says to Jesus. The Roman centurion who had a, a servant that was dying and he highly valued him, the gospel says, and he asked Jesus to come and heal him. Remember this? And that's in Matthew 8, 8 in Luke 7, 6. And the fourth person, all of them saying the exact same phrase is the apostle Paul who said, I am not worthy because I am the least of all the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Okay, let's unpack them. Look at our Genesis 32 text. You know this story. Jacob's name in Hebrew means supplanter. He is a deceiver, a trickster, a schemer, a manipulator. You call it what you want. But that's been his whole life. He, he's weaseled. Esau out of his birthright and his blessing, and now he's afraid that he is going to reap the consequences of all his trickery because Esau is coming the next morning, and it's nighttime, and he's coming with 400 men, and all Jacob has is a few helpers and servants in his family. He could never fight off such an attack, and he knows it. So he's sending all this stuff, these animals, lots of what we would say money today. But he's kind of like making things, trying to, you know, soften things. by sending all this stuff to Esau and give him all these presents so that everything will be all right. But the Bible says very carefully, he says in 7 and 8, Jacob was greatly afraid, 32, 7 and 8, and distressed. So he was fearful, he was depressed, he was discouraged. And he thinks he's going to be in trouble. In fact, he thinks God, Esau is going to take his life and probably kill his family and everybody. So in verses 9 and 10, he prays to God. And for the first time in a long time, truthfully and seriously and deeply, he realizes, what is our point? Who God is. Look at 9. Jacob said as he prays, Who is God? Oh God, my father of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac Oh, Lord, who said to me, see, he's saying, like, you with my father and my grandfather, and now you're with me, and the promises you made them about how you'd multiply us, you said the same thing, so don't forget me, right? You be faithful to me. I know who you are. You're the God who's been with my family for the longest time, and you've promised all these things to me, and you know, I can really use some assurance that this promise is going to hold out so I don't get killed. 
And so in verse 9, he concludes, Return to your country. This is what you told me, God, and your kindred, that I may do you good. Oh, God, I love some good right now. Verse 10. And in his prayer, here's the basis for what he thinks God could answer that prayer. Ready? Our phrase, I am not worthy. See it? How unworthy is he of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant? Here's what he says. The first time I I crossed this brook, I came alone over it with just my staff in my hand. And this time, God has blessed him so much with so much family, so many children, so much livestock. He's seriously rich that they have to come over in two different groups because all that he owns is so much. God has blessed him. And God blessed him so much when he wasn't even going hard after God. And Jacob remembers it. He remembers, God, you've been steadfast in your love and you've been faithful to me, but I've been anything but that to you. See, he sees God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, who's been faithful and loving and blessing him, and he sees God for who he is. And now, now he can, now he can, for the first time in his life, see, this is who I really am. You know what I've been? A schemer. And I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of all this blessing, and I'm probably not even worthy that you'd protect me, but you promised that you would, that you'd do good to me. And despite who I am, unworthy, God, would you bless me? See, the word worthy in Hebrew literally means very small and insignificant. Everybody wants to tell themselves today, to echo Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. Everybody wants to think of themselves as, I can do anything. You can accomplish anything. You can be big and great. See, God doesn't have you to have those motivations. He doesn't see you to have as your aim and goal in life is to be as great and big and significant as you possibly can. You know what his goal in his, your life is? So that you would live your life and use everything he's given to you to make him big and great and significant. But that's not what we teach our children, is it? Big. God is big, he says. God is significant. You know who's special? Not Jacob. God. You know what we need? Not higher self-esteem. We need higher God-esteem. We need to think higher thoughts of him. I wrote down in my notes, to say this, I am not worthy, is at the same time to say, Jesus, you are worthy. Because that's the only way you could say either one of them. The beginning of Genesis 32 in Hebrew, it says he came to Mahanaim. Im is always the ending in plural. Mahana is a Hebrew word that means double or two. And that this is the time, the second time, that he sees angels. See, because when he's at his own camp, singular, he doesn't know God and see God, and God's not in his life, so he doesn't see himself accurately. But when he has double camp, and God invades his camp, and he gets a view from heaven's point of view, and he begins to see how God is in his life, despite what the circumstances are, and that God's going to do something. He's, he begins to see who he really is, and you know what it is? He sees himself as unworthy, that God would do all this for me when I have done nothing comparatively for him. 
His whole life, Jacob has been making up his own identity, working things out on his own power and wisdom and strength, and now he comes to the place where he knows who God is, and that all changes. In fact, this whole story ends with the most famous part of Jacob's life, where he wrestles against God, which I consider a Christophany, which is Jesus pre-incarnate, and he wrestles with him all night until Jesus touches his, the, the hip of his socket of his, and his leg, and he doesn't walk. He's crippled the rest of his life. You know why? Because that's what it takes sometimes for us to get God esteem. <laughs> To break us out of trying to be self-esteem and how great we are and how we can handle things on our own. It's a valuable lesson. It's only when you come to the end of yourself can you ever come to say this, I'm not worthy. Do you see how important it is? Case study number two, if you'll turn to not all of them, just the one tonight. John 1.27. John the baptizer no one said, according to num numbers of time in the Bible, no one said, I am not worthy more than he did. Although they are the same event in all five instances. John 1.27. He's introducing Jesus because as the forerunner in Isaiah 41 through 30 is his job. It's what his job is to tell people about Jesus and point them to him. And in John 1, 21, here's what he says when Jesus says, I'm coming to be baptized. And, you know, here's John right away. He's got the right attitude. You're going to, I'm going to baptize you? Are you kidding me? You, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's going to be for now. And John says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me Watch, the strap of whose sandal, here's the phrase, I am not worthy to untie. Now, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, that everybody who, well, not everybody, because if you didn't have enough money, you wore no shoes, which was really bad for you. But most people had sandals, not like our sandals at all. Lots of straps and all kinds of contraptions to keep them on your feet. And... It was considered gross, and you can imagine why, because you walked everywhere, your feet were incredibly dirty, not dusty, dirty, and your sandals were gross. Uh, they weren't well made, and uh, Romans had spikes on theirs for footing for soldiers, but the average person didn't have that. So when you came into someone's house, if you had proper protocol for hospitality, one of the first thing they would do is they would wash your feet, but not anybody would wash your feet. They would, the lowest slave on the totem pole, not just a slave, but on the slave list of slaves, the lowest one, the most unworthy one, would be the one who took off the guest's shoes when they set down their sandals and they would wash their feet. Now, John says, to borrow from that picture, he doesn't say he's that guy. Oh no, he's lower than that guy. Did you catch it? Look what he says. I'm not even worthy to untie the what? The strap. Now, the lowest sandal, the lowest servant would take off the whole sandal. You know what John says? I'd have to be a step lower than that because to loosen the strap on it before you took it off, I wouldn't even be worthy of that. Now, how would that go over today? Would that make him special? I don't think that would make him special. Not in today's values. 
but to Jesus it would. You know why? Because John sees himself completely differently. Why? Because he has seen Jesus. He knows who he is. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John's gospel, John the Apostle, talks about John the baptizer from the very outset. The first five verses of John 1 are all about Jesus being the word who is the creator of the new heavens. And it says, remember how God said, let there be light? Jesus is going to come and he's going to be actually the light of the world. And then after that, in verses 6 through 10, it tells what John the baptizer's role is. And here's what it says. All through John 1, he was not that light but he came to bear witness of that light. Down in John 1, 19, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they come to John Wise Baptist and they say, who are you, John 1, 19? Are you the Christ? Here what he says again. He's not that light. No, I'm not the Christ. Oh, are you the one that was to come? No, I'm not the one. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you are the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. I mean, his whole thing is about, nope, not, 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 not. See, let me tell you this. We need to know who we're not. We really, you know what we need to know? You can't know who you really aren't until you know who he really is. And when you figure out who Jesus is and who he really is in your life, you will figure out this. You know what my identity is? It's not this. That's not me. That's not, I may do that. I may be part of my, that's not who I am. That's not who, you know what my job is in my life? When I get close to Jesus, I may be a worker, I may be a nurse, I may be a doctor, I may be this, I may be that, an athlete. But you know what I really am? My whole life is about pointing to Jesus. That's who I am. But you can't know that until you get close to him because you can't discover who you are until you first discover who he is. And here's what John says. When I got close to Jesus, here's what comes out of my mouth. I am not worthy I mean, go on and on. I'm not the light. I'm not all these things. And, and then he says, and then he says, but he must increase and I must. You know why? Because when you spend a lot of time with Jesus, it's always about him going up. See, he gets the esteem, not me. I'm going to decrease. I'm not getting better. I don't get more popularity. I'm not getting greater. He's getting greater. Do you see how it works? It's the complete opposite and antithetical to how our world sees things. It's amazing when you look through the remainder of Matthew's gospel, he can't stop talking like this. He says, Jesus is, phrase, greater than John, 11, 11. Jesus is greater than the temple, John, Matthew 12, 6. Jesus is greater than Jonah, 12, 41. He's greater than Solomon, 12, 42. John 4, 12, he's greater than Jacob, 8.53, he's greater than Abraham. You see what the Gospels are doing? But watch, though. But Jesus said of John, the baptizer, that there has never been a woman, a, a, a person born of a woman greater than him. In other words, you can't find anyone greater than him. But the greatest guy of all says this, I'm not worthy. Now see, you're the greatest in, in America. You're the greatest Tycoon, the greatest athlete, the greatest this. Listen, you know what? They, they're not saying, oh, yeah, but comparatively, as great as I am. Nobody says that. John the baptizer does. Because he's been with Jesus. And it's completely changed the way he thinks about himself. Number three, Luke 7, 6. Luke 7, 6. 
Jesus is entering Capernaum, which is his kind of his headquarters when he's around the Sea of Galilee. And as he walks into the outskirts of the city, people that have elders, Jewish elders from nearby, have been sent by a Roman centurion, which is unusual, to plead with, which is the word to beg, to beg Jesus to come because the centurion has a servant, probably Jewish, and he values him highly, and they're about to die, and he, he knows who Jesus is, and he wants to know if Jesus would come and heal him. But the Bible says that he knows also that Jesus is Jewish and who he really is and that he is Gentile. And so he says to Jesus in seven, let me tell you what the people say first. Watch the contrast. Luke 7, 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, watch, he is worthy. That's what everybody says about him. He is worthy to have you do this for him. And then they give reasons. They're kind of building an argument for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, let me tell you, he's, he is worthy. Let me prove it to you. He loves our nation, subjective, but he objectified his love because he builds the synagogue. I mean, the guy single-handedly is a centurion, which made pretty good money. He built us an entire synagogue. I mean, think of it, Jesus. How many Roman people, much less a centurion, would put their money toward a Jewish thing? I mean, this guy is unique. He's awesome. Jesus, you ought to come. Verse 5, For he loves our nation and built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent a second group, an envoy of friends, saying to him, Lord, watch this. Don't trouble yourself. Don't worry about coming to my... Why? Here's our phrase. For I am not worthy. You see what he says? To have you under my roof. Now, there are two Greek words for, for unworthy. Akana, hekanos, and adzios. Adzios is usually a worshiping word of worthy. God, you are so worthy. You're so awesome. You're so great. The other word means you don't fit. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be adequate or sufficient. It wouldn't be the right thing to do. And here's what he says. Jesus, I'm a Gentile, and I'm a Roman on top of that. You coming to my house, it doesn't fit. I'm not worthy of that. Here's why. You know why? Because if you, a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, enters in my Gentile home, you would become unclean. And I know who you are. You're awesome, great. You don't need to do that. That would be awful if I even asked you to do that. Not many Romans would have said that. He said, don't, but here's what he says. But don't come any closer to my house. But just say the word and it'll be done. Now the guy says, here's the explanation. Where does he get faith like that? Because he's a Roman and he's a centurion and he's over a hundred soldiers. And so when he has the authority to say this, my words are, you go do this and you go do that. He says, see, I know what authority is. Watch. But Jesus, you have a, you, authority not like anybody else. I tell people to do it. But Jesus, you cannot just tell people what to do. You can tell sickness what to do. You can tell death what to do. I mean, you, I know, you know authority like I have, but yours, your authority is unlike any other authority I've ever seen. You are not just a prophet. You're not just some great Jewish guy. I don't know exactly what you are, but here's what I do know. You are one of a kind. And so when this guy knows who Jesus is, watch. He discovers like everybody else in our list. Now I really know who he is. 
I look at myself and say, I'm not worthy. You have authority. You have God's authority. He just fell short of you are God. See, he knows who he is. And when he knows who he is, he looks at himself and says, here's what I got to say. I'm not worthy. Not even worthy for you to come into my house. But I believe you. Jesus says, I haven't seen such great faith. Not even in Israel. See, people think he's worthy. But you know what? That's their view of him apart from Jesus. But his view of himself, once he sees Jesus, they think he's worthy. He says, no, I'm not. See, people are going to tell you, oh, come on. You're all right. You're a really good person. You're worthy. See, they may be telling you that. And, it, and it's not because you're an awful person or you have no worth at all. Of course, you're created in the image of God. But listen, when you spend time with Jesus, here's what you know. Compared to him, I'm not worthy you know, the only other time a Roman centurion is mentioned in the book of Luke is at the cross where he watches Jesus die again, seeing who he is. And here's what it says. Behold, this must have been a righteous man, a truly righteous man. It changes him because he sees Jesus for who he is. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul is talking about the resurrection. And you know this passage. He's proving the resurrection, but he's also mainly talking about the gospel as he does it, about why the gospel is true that Jesus saves sinners. And he starts to give proof about Jesus conquering death by all the appearances that he had with the followers after his resurrection. And he uses the word appeared Four different times. Look at it. 15.5. He appeared to Kepha, Peter, and the rest of the 12. In 15.6 it says he appeared to over 500 people by large. Most of them are still alive. If you want to go ask them. He also appeared, verse 7, to James and the rest of the apostles. And then Paul says this in verse 8. But last of all, not that I'm great, I actually got last in line. He appeared to all these people, people, and you know what? The last one he appeared to was me. But he's not done. Last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, <laughs> the Greek word for untimely is trauma. And it's used to talk about someone who came too early, premature, they probably shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened that way. Paul says, that's who I am. I, like, not like everybody else, I was trauma to him. <laughs> but he came and appeared to me. It probably should never have happened because of who I was. But he came and appeared to me. And he appeared to me last of all. And it says, verse 9, here's why. For I'm the least, so I'm the last and I'm the least. I'm the least of all the apostles and even though it's only one word in the Greek, it's the exact same formation and structure of all the other ones. He says, unworthy. But it really just says in the Greek, I am not worthy. In fact, New King James and King James still translate it that way. I am not worthy. Because I, listen to what he says, and I'll be done. I persecuted the church. You know what he's saying? You know why I'm unworthy? I did all this unworthy things because I didn't know him. I thought I had to get rid of Jesus. I, th I never thought about him. I must do it. I had to persecute him. See, I didn't know Jesus. And that's why I was so unworthy. No. 
But he loved me anyways, even though I was unworthy. And he says to us, I'm unworthy because I persecuted the church. But what happened to him? But the grace of God, verses 10 and 11, completely changed my life. And anything I am today is all because of his grace. So when you say I'm not worthy, it's not some humble thing you're trying to humble brag. Oh, yeah, I'm just spiritual because I'm unworthy. No, he really, really means it. Really means it. I should have never, I was untimely. I should never have been an apostle. I should never have been a Christian. Do you know the awful things I did? See, but listen, but you know who I am now? Look at me. This is who I am because of who he is. Because of what he's done for me. See, listen, this week, teach yourself. Look in the scriptures. See God. See Jesus for all he is. And when you do, you should come away with this, oh God. How could you have such mercy? How could you have such grace? God, who am I to boast? Are you kidding? Boast about that? Are you kidding me? I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. See, God wants us to stay little and low and humble. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? To do justly, to love mercy, and what? To walk humbly with your God humbly and say I'm not worthy but he is let's pray oh Lord your grace is still amazing still amazing that you would save wretches and worms like us the New Testament goes on to say that we aren't worthy but Colossians says you made us worthy And someday we'll stand before you completely worthy because we will stand there in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. Oh God, thank you for that transformation that you can take unworthy people from the inside out, revolutionize their lives because they've been close to you. Oh God, may the people of Faith Baptist Church every morning get close to you that they can see who you really are, what you've done, and discover who they really are and what they should do because they see it in your son. Help us the more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.